Well, this morning, I want to say good morning, and we began Battle Ready. You guys ready for Battle Ready? Uh, we, I'm excited about uh, the po- possibility of where this is going, and I uh, want to encourage you. John said it in a video. We'll close the service with it uh, in, in about a, a, a little bit, but get in a group. If you're in a, an established group and your group leader is not walking through Battle Ready Ephesians study, then let me just tell you, they've gone rogue, okay? That's unlawful and punishable by fine and or imprisonment. And if you are uh, not in a group, sign up for a group. And here's what I want to show you. I think we're ready for it. There's a resource on our webpage, and it's, uh, we've done this in advance. And so all the small group discussion guides have already been uh, developed. They've been written. And John Wood has a Master of Divinity from a fancy theological seminary. He's leading our other pastors as we write blogs uh, throughout the week. So there's, there's a companion. So here's what's cool. Someone could miss church. They could not be in church right now. They could listen to the sermon online in like, an hour or anytime this afternoon and show up at a group tonight and they have these resources. So we hope that you will follow along and we hope and pray that it's going to be a, a really good series for us. Everybody's in a battle. Do you believe that? Now we're going to open the book in a little bit and we'll use the words chosen and predestined and not everybody's going to agree with that, right? We'll start parting ways a little bit, right? Or it'll bring up a lot of questions and we'll debate it, but we probably all can agree that we're in a battle. I believe that one of the reasons there's so much sadness and not enough gladness is that we spend too much time indoors. I believe we need to get outside. This summer was a great moment for me as I joined our team in the DR. We were in this mountain community with Hispaniola Mountain Ministries. We had a a week-long project to get a house ready for Chris and Jordan Mixon as they are now there with their family. It was a phenomenal week and I had a lot of fun. It was a great summer, a a lot of laughter and fun in, in the summer and in this trip in particular. We went to a waterfall. It was July the 4th, and Americans got to act all crazy, right, on July the 4th. So we said, hey, we're not in our land, but we celebrate the freedom that we have as Americans. So we went. There's Will right there. We went, and we enjoyed uh, the waterfall. And I was with our friends, a lot of laughter. I never secluded myself, but I sat there kind of in the midst of the group. No one knew, but I was in a battle. I was wrestling with something in my mind. I was doing some uh, mental gymnastics, some spiritual calisthenics. And I needed God, I needed him to speak to me, I needed assurance that he was going to work something out in my life. And in this moment, it was real clear, it was just a time for me in the midst of outdoors to worship with gladness and to simply say, God, you've got this. And I'm telling you, I heard him speak back to me with great assurance in my heart and mind. It just flooded me. And I, lo- I love water. Don't you love water? Like the, the Bible is pro-water. The Bible is at the beginning of creation and God creates it and it, it represents uh, cleansing. It represents regeneration. And in this moment, uh, in, in front of this water, I sense God do something in me. Now these moments, they don't happen all the time. But when they do, You remember it. And I remember God saying to me, I've got this. And even deeper than that, he whispered to me, Robert, you are mine. And I stand and tell you today that that's the battle. And the battle, how you do with the battle, whatever battles you're in right now, whatever fight you have in front of you, victory is to the extent that you have assurance of your identity your proper identity. So we're going to be in Ephesians. Everybody got that? We're going to be in Ephesians for these seven, eight weeks. It's going to get us to spring break, and then we're all going to Cancun. It's on me. Going to have a great time over spring break. Big things coming at Fondren. You'll want to stick around. Uh, 
attendance is required. You must be present to win. But anyway, uh, the, the book of Ephesians is divided, I have, divided it into two parts. It's, you can say four to six and one to three. The chapters four, five, and six, listen to this. This is where all the commands are. There's a, a lot of commands, a lot of things that say, hey, do this. Uh, specific instructions in how to live. But there are no commands in verses one through three. You're not told to do anything. You could say that verses four through six, it's about behavior. And I think we could all agree, right? No matter your belief system, if you say that you believe something, if you say that you're following that something, whether it's a, a, a God, God, or ideology or something, it, it's always good, right, if what you believe and say you believe and tell others to believe lines up with how you live. Well, we'd all agree with that, and so it is in being a follower of Jesus. So here, it, 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 Paul is saying, hey, followers of Jesus, first century followers of Jesus, you're living off a different script. There's a different way to behave, but here he says, no commands. It's not about behavior as much as it is about belonging. You belong to someone. When my oldest son, who was, he was about three years old, he had stolen something. He's not here today, so I can talk about him. He was three and he stole some candy, specifically some M&Ms from another child. And I thought, you know, I'm a pastor and a parent. This is a teachable moment. He's young. I need to get out in front of this thing. So I sat him down and I said to him, you know, RJ, uh, when you know God you always should do what is right. When you know God, you should always be honest. When you know God, you should never steal. And he looked up at me and said, I don't know God yet. There's something, right, about this. When you, right, when you believe something, when you belong to someone, then, then it affects how you live. That was well played, wasn't it? Very well played by a three-year-old. Belonging and behavior. And I think there's something to that order. So for, for a moment, I want to nerd out with you on chapter one, okay? In chapter one, that we're going to read parts of it in a little bit. And if you're in a group, I encourage you, or whether you're not, to read chapter one every day this week. That's my challenge to you. Read chapter one. Let God speak to you this week in Ephesians one. But in this first chapter, there are 48 pronouns. All right, follow me. 48 pronouns, 30 of them represent God. Who's the most important? 48 pronouns, 30 represent God. There are 24 verbs or action sequences and 20 reflect God's action God doing the, being the one who acts so according to Ephesians 1 he blesses he chooses he adopts he predestines he guarantees he seals he redeems he gives grace he forgives he lavishes his love on us he does those things I think I named 10 of the 20 in chapter 1 we only do four. How important are we? Not as important as God. Is the story ultimately about you or him? In Ephesians 1, the four things that we're instructed to do, invited to do, we listen, we believe, we hear, we receive. But he is the one. Those are really just, again, not commands. They're just responses to a God who is the creator, to a God who is the catalyst. So that's just a little bit about Ephesians that I wanted to drop on you today, much more to come. But I want to share with you about Ephesus, because it's easy for us to think we come to the Bible, and we say, well, that was written so long ago, and you're right. But we, we tend to think that it was written to towns and villages where there's uh, obscurity, where there, you, know, you picture shacks with sheds out back and goats on chains. And, and, but I want to tell you that this letter was written to followers of Jesus in a battle in a major metropolitan city. This is the city of Ephesus. It's the fourth largest city of its time. And let me back up and say something bigger than that. Uh, the gospel took root in an urban context. 
The gospel took root in an urban context. Subpoint: God has a heart for our cities. And here, I want to tell you, Ephesus, I just did. It's the fourth largest city in the Mediterranean world at the time. Here's a picture of the famous library. This is the Celsius Library in Ephesus. This is the remnants of it, obviously, uh, a rendering of it. Beautiful, beautiful place. And it was known as the most important library in the world. We can deduce from that that, there was, it, that Ephesus attracted scholars and stimulated scholarship. Ephesus was located on the Aegean Sea. It was a port city. Trade and commerce were were important there. There was shopping, and you could buy almost anything. You could buy silk and fabric from Egypt. You could buy into Roman fashion. You could get spices from the Far East. It was a very, very important city. Here's a temple. This is the Celsius Library. Here's the temple. This was the Temple of Artemis, and it was um, known as one of the seven wonders of of the ancient world. And this was the grandest temple of them all. There were 50 other known temples that archaeologists have undercovered, and the temples are believed to be uh, representing a polytheistic uh, culture and religion of the day. Ideas were open. It was a very spiritual place. They believed in a multitude of gods, gods to meet your needs under certain situations. There was the karma thing and all of that, important as we read Ephesians in just a moment. But Archaeologists also unearthed um, across the road from the library, they unearthed brothels where men, you can put two and two together here, uh, I guess little has changed, but men came to the city to make contribution, to learn, to teach, to tell others how to live and all the virtues of justice and such, but they would sneak under the, the tunnels underneath the library to the brothels because of a lack of control, fleshly control and appetite. So, Ephesus, major metropolitan city, trade, commerce, learning. It was an oppressive city. It was a corrupt city. There was prostitution. There was human trafficking. There were lots of problems uh, and a lot of opportunities in this city of Ephesus. An important phrase that Paul uses in chapter 1 is in Christ. Simple, isn't it? In Christ. There's a lot of things that you and I can be in, we can get into, we can be in a bind, we can be in a battle, we can be in custody, we can be in cahoots, we can be in denial, we can be in the club, popping bottles at the club, we can be in love, we can be in labor, we can be in need, we can be in trouble, we can be too far over our head, we can be in way too deep, we can be in the zone, we can be in our element, right? There's a lot of things we can be in, but nothing more important than being in Christ. And I wouldn't be a preacher worth my salt if I didn't stop for a moment and ask you personally, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? We welcome every skeptic, every even cynic. We welcome everyone trying to figure this faith journey out. You're welcome to process with us. You're welcome to get into a group and get to know other people. But I want to ask you today, have you made a decision? Are you in Christ? You're definitely in a battle, but are you in this battle with Christ? It comes down to identity, to our identity and understanding our identity and who we are. Jennifer has done a great job in the team leading us to sing about who we are already in Christ, even before you hear the word today. Where is your identity? You can look around the room 
like we did at 9.30. You can see people. You can see some people you know, a lot of people probably that you don't know. And you can make guesses on people. We do that, don't we? The scripture says in 1 Samuel 16 that, man, we look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. When you look at someone, a man or woman's outward appearance, you can make judgments about them. What's deep is really who a person is. A person, you are a soul. You have a body, but you are a soul. And deep in your soul, your body takes you places, but in your soul, you want a place to belong. You, you look for your identity somewhere. Where do you look for your identity? Think about it. What do you attach your value to? What makes you most angry? What, what disappoints you? What puffs you up? When someone gives you a compliment in this area, what makes you go, yeah? And what makes you think, that's who I am. If this was a therapy session and you were my counselor, I, could, I would lay down on the couch and I would tell you, hey, this job sometimes gets the best of me. I love it. I feel called to do it. I want to do it till I'm really old. I'm not old yet. But I've got, I believe, decades. I want to I I pastor. I want to pastor here if you'll let me at Fondren Church. The 930 seemed a little suspect, uh, their response. But I would love to keep being the pastor. But can I tell you that sometimes, many times, I put my worth into this thing. Like, you know, I am a pastor. But sometimes I think that's who I am. And there are certain things that give me a scorecard and it tells me how I'm doing. And if I'm not careful, if I'm not careful, I move further away from the gospel, even in the business of professional Christianity. How about you? Where do you get your identity? Anybody seen the weather forecast this week? You see the difference between Monday, Monday's high and Tuesday's low? It's, I see some kids in the room, uh, a lot of them are down the hall, but look, it's going to snow this week, so no school Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm calling it now. No school Tuesday or Wednesday. We'll see how Thursday looks, but there's no need, no need to go or even think about it. So pass the word, post it on social media. No school Tuesday, Wednesday, but the, the, the high tomorrow and the low on Tuesday is just a great gap. Like it's a, it's a significant difference. It drops so quickly. And here's what could be true of you. One circumstance, one phone call, one text, one conversation, one relationship can send you plummeting. Just one. That's all it takes. Now, can, can we just like give each other a group hug or something and just say, man, like that's not right. Like what's up with that? Just, just a major, major drop. And we can go too high and we can go too low based on a situation or circumstance or relationships. Some of you, listen, I'm not just a preacher, I'm a pastor. And so I interact at deep levels with, with many of you, with many people. And some of you, it's about seeking the approval of your parents. And some of you grew up in a home where your parents weren't just unpleasant, they were unpleasable, which I don't think is a word. Like you couldn't, you, it was never enough. If you made C's, they wanted B's. If you made B's, they wanted A's. If you made A's, they wanted extracurricular excellence. And I know people in their 30s, 40s, and even 50s who are still seeking their parents' approval. I know some people who their parents are dead now, and they still hear the voices of, you're not blank enough. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. Here's one, you're not successful enough. And can I tell you, I just want to be honest with you this morning, if you didn't get your parents' approval when you were a child, you're probably never going to get it, all right? So I just want to love you enough to tell you that truth, okay? Because that's true. I know it varies a little bit, but generally, 
That's true. If you didn't get your parents' approval when you were a child, you're probably never going to get it. And let me just say this. There's 7 billion plus people on the planet. The gospel tells me, you interpret it yourself, but the gospel tells me that I don't need one or two people to approve of me. One or two people can't ruin it for me. But we hear those voices, and we get chained to that. Um, I'm going to tell you something shocking. I hope you act like it's shocking, like just give a large uh, collective gasp. But here it goes. There are some people who don't really like me. Excellent. So much better. Yeah. 930 was weak. 930 was real weak on that. But yeah, there are some people that don't like me. Look, you, you stand up in front of people and open the book. You're going to start separating yourself. You lead people and make decisions, you're going to start separating yourself. I've got some quirks and some uh, idiosyncrasies and some minor, minor, moderate, almost not even noticeable character flaws. And so there's, I, mean, I, I don't know what reason, but there are some people in this world, not many, I know, but, and appreciate your reaction. There's not many, but there are some people who don't like me. And can I tell you what the gospel says to me? Now, you can go the wrong way with this. Don't go the wrong way with this. But here's what I'm going to tell you. The gospel says to me, so what? So what? You know why? Because he does. And some of you need to hear that. You're like, I don't know that he's preaching the Bible now. Let me tell you, it frees us to not be enslaved. We're in Ephesians, but Galatians 1.10, if I'm seeking the approval of man, every man, I am not a servant of Christ. We just went to the Bible, if you're wondering. And you think it's wrong. I'm telling you, some of you need to say, who cares? Some of you need to point heavenward and say, he does. So God is crazy about you. In Ephesians 1.3, let's get into it. Ephesians 1.3 says the following, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Hold that for a second. In verses 1 and 2, uh, you're going to read this uh, at least seven times this week as you read Ephesians 1. But it, Paul starts off this letter to the church at Ephesus by saying grace and peace. He does that a lot, grace and peace. And here's what I love. Paul is saying that grace is a gift that when you open it, you get a whole bunch of other gifts. You ever done that? Like literally, like you got a gift. I remember uh, not too long ago, I got a gift and I was looking at the gift. I was sizing it up. You know, what, what are the dimensions of the gift? I grabbed it, shook it. What does it weigh? It was the child in me. And I was measuring the gift and I didn't realize that I was going to open that gift. And inside that box would be other gifts, not just one. And here's the thing, when you and I receive grace, when we receive the gift of grace, there are so many other blessings that we receive. You know anybody, when you ask them, how are you doing today? And they say, blessed. You know anybody like that? George is our custodian here at Fondren Church slash Woodland Hills. He turned 79 on Friday. I think the staff were dialed in, but I texted them all and took my picture with him. He said, it's George's birthday today. And everybody just chimed in. We love, love George. It's our goal to keep George. I don't know if you know many 79-year-olds that work hard, but George works hard. And I don't know that, I don't know if there's anybody, I don't want to isolate anybody, but I don't know if there's any other human being that I've worked with for years that every single encounter, I walk away feeling blessed. Every single one. And it seems genuine. I think because it is genuine. But when I ask George how he's doing, he says blessed and he tells me why. And he wants to know that I'm blessed. And George never gets more exciting than when on Thursday or Friday he has to fire up the waters for, for the baptism. He so is for us. Blessed. 
Paul is saying that when you receive grace, you are blessed, and it leads to so many blessings. Remember what you learned about Ephesus. It was a city with many beliefs, with many gods, many temples, paying tribute to a variety of deities. They believed in spiritual stuff. They believed in many gods. They had the god of this, the god of this, the god of that. They had the karma thing going on. Imagine being enslaved to pleasing God that way. Do you see how refreshing the gospel is? Do you see the power of Jesus Christ? He frees us from having to live to please and live to please and live to please because he speaks that over us. Now, here are the blessings. The first one is you are chosen. Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us. We're valued. All the blessings, all the blessings that he bestows can be ours in Christ. Now, let me say this. Doesn't it feel good to be chosen? You with me? To be invited to the party, to be offered the job, to be asked out on the date. Doesn't it feel good to be chosen? And just the opposite of that. Don't you hate to be left out? Don't you hate to be the last one picked for the kickball team or the, the, the one at home? at night when others are at the prom. The gospel of Jesus Christ, don't miss out on this. I'm not talking about the sermon today so much as I am life, but the gospel is that he chose us. Now, this is where a lot of people separate themselves. I know some of you have visited Fondra. Maybe this is your church home. And I've heard story after story of people visiting and with a, sitting next to their roommate or their spouse. They'll be checking out Fondra, listening to the sermons, and they'll over time nudge each other and go, He's reformed, didn't he? Yeah, he's reformed. I, I like this guy. I think, he's, I think he's reformed. I think he believes the right way, right? Listen, Scripture teaches us that God chose us, that he predestined us, that the action is his. In fact, Jesus taught in John 6 that we can't come to him unless the Father draws us to him. And the Greek word there implies an irresistible force, like a hungry man or woman in search for food. We've got to, our will has to be there. Scripture teaches us that he draws us, but what does that mean exactly? What does it mean that he chose us? Let's say we have a, a young man in the, in the house today, and he is a, he's a Reformed theologian, a budding Reformed theologian. He's a Calvinist uh, by name and nature, and he approaches a, a beautiful uh, girl, an attractive young lady, and he says, hey, I'm a Calvinist dater, and I choose you to marry me. I choose you you did not choose me. I chose you. I have ordained you and I to get married. Now, he would need a restraining order, wouldn't he? Well, I think we, I think we all would agree. That's just downright creepy and wrong. But let me ask you, does, does God force you to love him? Is, I mean, you've heard me preach on suffering. This is going to challenge you when you put me in a box. But when you've heard me preach on evil and suffering... During the hard question series, what do I do when I look at our world? I go to free will. I go to free will in the world that we live because love offers free will. So are we like a mail-order bride? We have no choice. God forces us to love him. And so you see, God's will, God's will and what's happening in us are conformed together. Now, I want to be honest with you. It mystifies me. There is certainty, and man, I preach it. There is mystery, man, I preach it. In Scripture, Jesus said in John 15, you did not choose me, I chose you. Jesus also said, whosoever will may come. 
Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come after me. Jesus said, if you are weary and heavy laden, you come to me, anyone, and I will give you rest. What's happening here? In Scripture, we're told clearly that God chooses. We can't love unless he first loved us. But over and over again in Scripture, we're given choices from the beginning to the end. In Deuteronomy 30, God says, I put in front of you life or death, choose life. In Joshua 24, choose you this day. What? Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Revelation. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door. And so to me, the Scripture does teach both. And what I want to say to you today is, let that boggle the mind. And let the boggling of your mind lead to the humbling of yourself before Him. Be excited to learn. And look, some of you likely may even know more than I do in this area. But I know what the Scripture says, and I lean in to learn what it says and what it means. But I do know this. I know that John Calvin's favorite verse in the Bible, apparently, was Deuteronomy 29.29. Anybody know it? There are secret things that belong to the Lord. There are secret things that belong to the Lord, and then there are things that he's revealed to us, so we don't, we're not going to know it all, okay? In Psalm 131, David was thinking about it all, and he said it, was, it overwhelmed him. It was too much for him. It was over his head, and he had to learn to wean himself from uh, the intellectual craziness of, of it all. God, you've got it. I'm not going to understand it all. Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 13 when he talked about love, he would say that now we only see dimly like in a mirror with fog. We don't see it all, but one day we're going to see very, very clearly. And so the important thing is to know that God's love, he has chosen us. Look at Ephesians 1.5. Not only are you chosen and valued, but he predestined us and he adopted us. Let me read it as it is. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Let me ask you, what does Superman, Harry Potter, and Cinderella have in common? What do Superman, Harry Potter, Cinderella, Tarzan, Snow White and Annie have in common. They're all orphans. They're all orphans in search of parents, characters in search of a parent and a place to call home. In first century Ephesus, I want to just for a moment, we could get really deep into this. I just want to give you something um, so beautiful, so true historically. In the city of Ephesus, uh, there were later some writers, here are their names, uh, Soranus and Suetonius, and the, one of them wrote a volume about how to uh, pick an infant, stay with me, how to pick an infant that would be able to live. How to pick out an infant that would be able to live. Now, your thought is like my thought, right? Every infant, I mean, everyone is created in the image of God, And every infant ought to be able to live and we ought to do everything that we can do to make sure that every infant can live. A law in New York enraged many this week. What's happening here about 300 yards from us right now um, is a battle about life and the sanctity of life and when it begins. And the debate got sparked this week like I haven't seen it in a while. But in this culture in Ephesus, there was a culture where Children were discarded. 
they were dropped off. And in, in, in this work, one of these writers, he talks about this very reality. I'll see if I can remember. There are five uh, reasons that people would drop a baby off, either uh, to dispose of in a dump or a heap or to be set outside a public square somewhere where someone, the hopes was someone, would take the, take the infant. But the infant was, quote-unquote, exposed to the elements. And there were reasons. The first was economic. Uh, there were poor families and another baby meant another mouth to feed and the hardship was too great. Grinding poverty on the outskirts of this city. Another reason, there, were, there was um, um, illegitimacy. They believed that there was um, evil omens. Um, there were birth defects. A child was looked uh, at and even in some wealthy homes. And if it's sluggish and weak, it could be discarded these children common in the day of Ephesus does it does this blow your mind to leave a child out even in Jackson even in our city and other places around America I've watched the local news I've seen television reports where uh, this has been an isolated issue but whenever it happens people are deeply grieved and people in the public square are saying if you don't want your baby leave it at the hospital like our hospital will receive your child. So when Paul writes to this church of first century Jesus followers, and he says, you've been chosen, you've been predestined, you've been adopted. No doubt there were some in the congregation who knew that they had been disposed of, that they had been discarded. And in that time when people were discarded, you were either left to succumb to the elements or someone picked you up. But many children that were picked up were led into ultimately into a life of slavery and even prostitution. But I can't help but think of somebody reading Paul's letter in the first century who was picked up. And their story is, it ain't who threw you away. It's who took you. It, it, it's not being disposed of and being abandoned, and being thrown away. It's being picked out, and picked up, and taken home. And that's the gospel story. There were 7 million hits on YouTube of this video. So likely, just like at the 930, many of you have seen this. But look again, and I want to ask you a question after you've witnessed this. All right, well, there's one more gift. We have one more It's gift. not from Grammy, but it's, yeah, it's another gift. Why don't you careful open it up? There we go. I want you to read it. I'm going to be adopted. <laughs> we love you, sweetheart. We'll always be your parents. If you're not crying or you didn't cry when you first saw it or you're not thinking about crying, I don't want to be your pastor or friend. <laughs> Doors there and here. She struggled in foster care for a while. And that was the day she found out that she had a home. Here's Katie Davis. You know about Katie? Katie was, you ready for this? And so, oh, by the way, don't anybody use the word sacrifice today, all right? Don't, don't say that you sacrificed anything today. This is Katie Davis as a single person in her 20s. She adopted 13 children from Uganda. In her book, 
Kisses with Katie, New York Times bestseller. You heard that? She says the gospel is adoption in her living room. That's the story. That's the gospel. Back to the young lady. What was her response? A lot of you seen the video, but what was her response? If you had to give her a response in one word, what would, what would you describe it as? I would say worship. God protect us. God protect us from our ho-humness when we yawn and we're bored because we're living off a different script. Y'all, we're living off the wrong script. And we may be going to church and going through some motions, but we're not getting our identity from the gospel, from God who says that we're chosen, adopted, we're redeemed, and we have value with Him. In closing, I want to share with you Ephesians 1.7. Not only are we chosen and adopted we're redeemed in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace the next verse it'll later say that he's lavished it upon him upon us it's a love that is lavished a lot of you man your marriages your relationships your roommates friendships family that you come from love isn't lavish it's very scarce it's very, like, hold it tight to the vest. Don't let it out. Don't express it. You told them you loved them several years ago. If your mind changes, you'll tell them. But God's love is a lavish love. It's a lavish love. In Him, we have redemption. That means something is bought with a price. And I ask you as we round toward home, what would you give your life for to purchase? What would you give up to purchase someone else? Here's a photo of Nicholas Winton. He was a young clerk, really young clerk, for the London Stock Exchange in 1938, right before World War II. Something got a hold of his heart when Hitler and the Nazi regime was extending its reach into Czechoslovakia. Nicholas Winton rescued 700-plus Jewish children. He died at the ripe old age of 107 in Los Angeles, in the Los Angeles Times, in his obituary, shared the story that Nicholas Winton in 1938, in a nine-month period, rescued 700 children. He not only arranged their transportation to, in and around London, but he worked to ensure homes for the children to be welcomed into. That's like a lot of work. Like that's passion and organization. That's insanity. That's beauty. And in the obituary, it tells, um, shows a picture of one of the descendants. It's a grandchild who is elderly at the time. Can you imagine when you lived 107? <laughs> There's someone with, whew, someone with a handmade sign in their 50s. And the sign at his funeral says, Thank you for our lives. Like, that's just somebody that gets it, huh? Like, thank you for our lives. The gospel message, in a moment, we're going to have you stand and we're going to take communion. In fact, Jennifer, the team, if you'd go ahead and make your way and deacons around the room, if you and your spouses would take your leadership post. And we're going to close our service as, with an act of worship, doing what we do the final Sunday of every month, coming to the Lord's table, taking the Lord's Supper, known as communion, where we remember the gift that He gave. We remember the sacrifice that He made for us. He laid down 
his life. Paul will go on to say, not only are you chosen, not only are you adopted, not only are you redeemed at great value, but you're sealed, you're guaranteed. In Ephesians 1, verse 14, can we still throw that up there? Ephesians 1, 14 says this, who is the guarantee? This is the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. It's a world of cheap, empty slogans and promises and claims. In fact, I believe this. I believe there's a time in everybody's life when you get to a place and you're usually sitting in a dark room, you're usually alone, and you're thinking what was stated so long ago in Proverbs that many, many a man says he's going to be faithful, but a faithful man who can find. And your heart, like mine, gets scarred and jaded with all the scandal, with all the pain and problems of people that we thought were good, that preacher, that coach, that teacher, that parent, that politician, that leader, that coach. We thought then just time and time again, we, let, we get let down. And it's like watching infomercials where you know the, the snake oil salesman is making a lot of money, but they're about to get raided, right, by the IRS or some government agency because it's a fraud. That happens. All those infomercials you used to watch, like they're shut down. Like the government raided them because it was a scam. And Paul is saying there's a guarantee here. And the gospel is a guarantee. The whole trinity is at work. The Father planned it. Your salvation. The Father planned it. The Son accomplished it. And the Holy Spirit guarantees it. And it's a good guarantee. Would you stand with me today? I'm going to pray over us. And after I pray, I want you to follow the person next to you. Every follower of Jesus, everyone who confesses his name is Savior and as Lord, you're invited to walk up to the elements, to take the bread, just get a pinch of it, and dip it lightly into the juice. And this is Christ's body and His blood, representative of that, broken and shed for you. Father, thank you that we have an invitation. Before you tell us how to behave, we're told in Ephesians that we belong. You don't give us a single command, well, just listen, just receive and move toward believing and hoping. And God, before we know that we're living off a new script with a new life, God, we're told that we're chosen and valued, adopted and redeemed, and it's all guaranteed by one who will never, ever let us down. We come now, Lord. Receive our worship. You said this. We do this in remembrance of you. In you we pray. Amen.